Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please grab them. Go to Judges chapter 6. For the sake of time, there's about 40 verses in this chapter. We won't quite get through all of them, uh, but for the sake of time, we're not going to, I'm not going to read them um, at the beginning, as I usually do. How many of you have ever heard somebody share their testimony before? Anybody? Yeah. Um, it's interesting, when, when someone shares their testimony, essentially what they're sharing is they're sharing how God encountered them at some point in their life. And one of the things that's interesting about sharing testimonies is that the reason those testimonies usually encourage us is because as we listen to someone else share about how God encountered their life, we ourselves encounter God through them sharing about that encounter with God in their life, right? Um, that's why the, the story of the gospel, of what Christ did for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, all that he came to accomplish, um, it continues to go forward throughout the world. For the last 2,000 years, Christ has been, has been building his church. And um, in this story in Judges chapter 6 today, I... You guys know I usually roll with some sort of like an outline or some little points or something like that, um, and I, I still have some, like I know where we want to go, but this is just such a beautiful story. It's such a beautiful testimony of one man's encounter with God, and really my hope is this morning is that as we study this man Gideon and his encounter with God, that we ourselves will encounter God. In some, in some way. Because that's ultimately what we need. Amen? That's what we need. You might not know it this morning, but that's what you need. And it is an act of, of sheer grace that God comes to us in our darkness and in our sin, and he, and he meets us where we're at. And so we're just going to kind of let this passage unfold this morning. I do have a little picture. It just made me think about this. Um, put that picture of that strange-looking fruit up there this morning. Does that look appetizing to you? Not really. Well, it's actually, we ate it down in Colombia. It's called a grenadilla, which I think is, is Spanish for little grenade or grenade. Um, and it's, they eat it as a dessert down there. Um, and it looked like this, a little bit, like, kind of like a big lemon. Um, it was actually very satisfying to open. You would crack it on the edge of like a table or something, and then it would perfectly peel right in the middle as if the whole thing was perforated already or something. And then you would, so you just crack it open, and then you would just, uh, you would just squeeze it, and you'd eat it like a little gogurt or like a squishum or something that you just squeeze out. And there were these little tapioca-like little round eyeball things in it. Um, that were very sweet, and they, and they ate it as a dessert. Like, why are you sharing that with me? Well, because this, this, this text this morning, again, it doesn't need any real preparation. We just um, are going to crack it open and squeeze it out. Cool? And so I'm going to read and just make some comments along the way. It's a beautiful story of God encountering one man, and again, my prayer is that he will encounter us through it as well. Judges chapter 6 verse 1 <coughs> says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that little phrase occurs seven times throughout this book and that's kind of what the book is built around. Uh, for those of you that were here uh, a couple weeks ago when we first started this series in the book of Judges is that the question that I said that we're going to come back to over and over again is what happens to God's people when they stop living like God's people? And the answer is the book of Judges happens. Or to put it another way, things go really badly. You will find yourself in bondage. And so this is this cycle that the people of God are continuing to go through in this book because they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so end of verse 1 then it says, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian who was their enemy for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. 
And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would become like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low, or another translation there for very low is very small. Israel was brought very low or very small because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So what, what we see in these introductory verses to this story of Gideon, who's going to take up now the next three chapters in the book of Judges. And so for those of you that call Mercy Hill home over the next several weeks, we're essentially going to be doing this little mini-series within the series of Judges about the life of Gideon. Uh, but what we see in the story of Gideon is a picture of what sin produces in the life of God's people when they embrace a life of sin. Uh, it was God's will that the Israelites come out of the land and inhabit it and enjoy the fruit of it. Um, God wants them to be satisfied in this land that he himself described as flowing with milk and honey. I'm not even sure what that means, but it sounds pretty good, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. But now we see them dwelling on the edges of the land and not living in the midst of it. They're surviving on the margins. They're not thriving in the center. They're scrounging about in caves and dens uh, instead of in the center of their inheritance, living freely where God had called them to live. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories, uh, true story, by the way, uh, a guy named Anton Yates in April of 2000. He lived in New York City, and he bought for himself an eight-week-old Siberian tiger for a pet. That was in April of 2000. In September of 2003, he checked himself in to a New York City uh, emergency room with huge claw wounds all over his body. It got to the place where at the end this tiger had grown. He, again, he was keeping it in his apartment <laughs> in Harlem. Um, probably not the best move. Uh, and it got to the place where he would just crack open the door and he would throw in some meat and then shut it again without trying to get scraped by this giant claw that would come after him. That is a picture of what sin does in our lives. It pushes us out of our inheritance, it pushes us out of what God wants for us, it pushes us to the margins, uh, but for whatever reason, just like the Israelites here, just like Anton Yates uh, back in his Harlem apartment building, we continue to feed that thing. We continue to feed our sin, and we think that it's somehow going to get better. We think that things are somehow going to change. Brothers and sisters, we have to repent. We have to turn. You cannot tame the tiger. You cannot live with the tiger the Bible does not just call us to just uh, marginalize sin or to just, um, just kind of make it our pet and to try to tame it. It calls us to kill our sin. That's what repentance is. It's acknowledging with God the truth about who we are and about what sin is, that it's evil, that it's wicked, and that God is holy, and that it must be put to death. Um, and again, this is the picture of of so many Christian lives that, and, and churches that things start off well, but eventually we allow sin to live with us, and then eventually it takes over, and it pushes us out to the margins. Um, and it always comes back to the fact that um, we think that satisfaction will be found somewhere else other than in Jesus Christ. And the issue is always one of worship. And again, the imagery here is, is vivid. Notice in verse 3 that they were working hard to plant crops. It says they, they would plant their crops. Um, they weren't just sitting around waiting for stuff to fall out of the sky. They were, they were doing some work. And yet, whatever little bit they could get, the enemy would come. And he would just ravage. And he, and he would take it. Uh, and... I guess this is just, again, such a beautiful picture. I mean, a beautiful in a sad way, in a tragic way. It's a picture of what sin does in our lives and where I, and where I find so many Christians and where I found myself even living at times. Is that we're working hard. We're trying really hard. We're putting in effort to try to change because we believe the lie that we can change our, ourselves. But the truth is, we're, even though we're, we're trying really hard, is that 
change isn't occurring because we're not taking care of the one thing that God has called us to prioritize. And that is that we rightly worship him and have no other gods before him. See, true repentance is always an issue of who you're worshiping. It's always an issue of the heart. It's always an issue of priority. It's an issue of what is first in your life. And I talk to so many Christians, and again, I've found myself there at times, where they're trying really hard, like the Israelites, to be fruitful. They're trying really hard to gain a harvest of joy, of something that can be enjoyed in their life, be given to the glory of God. Yet the enemy keeps them enslaved because we don't repent of our false gods and of the things that we think are more important than Jesus Christ. So the the story picks up here because of their sin in verse 7. It says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. and And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear or revere or worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So again, the issue is always one of worship. Now it's interesting in the story of Judges, uh, the overall development of the book, because this is the first time that we see God sending a prophet to the people before he actually sends the judge uh, to, to deliver them. Now most people think when they think of prophet in the Bible, they think of somebody who foretells the future. And there is some truth to that, but throughout the Bible, the primary role of the prophet is to call God's people back to his word and back to his ways and back to obedience and back to the truth. In other words, the reason why the prophet can foretell the future is because God's word is always true. And when God says that we disobey, he tells us very plainly what's going to happen when we disobey him. And that is things are going to go badly for us. And the book of Judges is going to happen. And so um, God's word is always true, and the prophet here comes to call them out of this, that it was not God's will for them to just endlessly live in bondage, in slavery, and in oppression. And yet we see again and again throughout the book that the people continue to return to this. And brothers and sisters, though we are often loath to hear it, when God sends us a hard word from his word, it is an act of sheer grace. He is faithful to call us back again and again to the clarity of his ways and to who he has called us to be. We are to love him. We are to fear him. We are to revere him more than money, more than the praise of men, more than earthly kings or governments. We are to fear him and honor him more than pleasure or comfort. And many times when we find ourselves being unfruitful, living at just the margins, it seems, overrun by the enemy, brothers and sisters, it's not a mystery as to why. We act like it's confusing. And we're going to see Gideon here in just a second as we transition to the next section of this chapter. Gideon is a little bit confused, but it's not confusing. Jesus Christ must be at the center of our lives. He is the only one that has the power to put the enemy under his feet and to allow us to thrive and to be fruitful for his honor and his glory um, as he has called us to be. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. (coughs) Excuse me. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a terebinth tree, at Ophrah. All week long I kept saying Oprah, and I'm like, I'm just not going to say Oprah anymore, Uh, but I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midian. So here Gideon comes on the scene, and God is going to raise him up as a judge or as a deliverer, as he has several others throughout throughout this book. Um, Gideon gets a lot more press or a lot more print than some of the other judges. Again, there are three chapters devoted to his life, and so there are some important things that uh, God wants us to look at from his life, which is why he's given us 
uh, that amount of information on Gideon. Here where we first find Gideon, where we first encounter him, is he is living in fear, just like the rest of the Israelites. He's really not that much different from uh, the nation. Is He is uh, beating out wheat in a wine press, which wasn't normal, but he was doing it to hide it from the Midianites. So he himself was just living on the margins. He was trying to scrounge together a little bit of a living, scrounge together a little bit of fruitfulness. Um, and you see that the angel of the Lord shows up to him here in the midst of his fear. So, sometimes um, as I'm studying, especially a narrative story like this, there are certain details of the story that just jump out at me and I just, I just can't get away from. And this past week, the thing that I just kept coming back to that I love so much in this story is how the angel of the Lord comes and he just sits under the tree here. Um, now this angel of the Lord, as we will find out a little bit later, this is what you call a theophany, or maybe even more specifically a Christophany, is that it is the pre-incarnate Christ. So we are celebrating this season right now, the incarnation, when God, the, the Son, uh, second person of the Trinity, who has existed in all of eternity past, he came to earth, that's what, and he put on flesh, that's, the word in, that's what the word incarnate means, that he put on flesh, and he came, and he was uh, born like a little baby, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's the season in which we find ourselves in. Here, though, before he ever comes as a little baby, born in a manger, he, he shows up as the angel of the Lord, okay? This is, this is God himself. And he shows up here, and he just sits underneath this terebinth tree. And the, the idea of him sitting down there, it's the idea of he's not, he's not stressed out. He's not anxious. He's not worried like Gideon and like everybody else. Now, there's a little bit of an interesting rabbit trail that I want to take us down just, just very quickly. Um, and that is the study of the terebinth tree, or as it sometimes is translated in English as well, is the oak tree. Okay? So very quickly, there's a couple things about this. Um, number one is that God would often show up to his people um, by these trees. So far in the story, story, if you're just kind of reading the story um, of the Bible from, from, beginning, from the beginning to end, you have you know, God showing up to Moses at this burning bush, this little kind of mini, mini tree. You have places in Genesis chapter 12 um, where Abram is by the same type of trees, these terebinth trees or oak trees at Morah. God shows up to him. Then years later, um, Abraham builds an altar by the oaks or terebinth trees at Mamre. Then years later in Genesis chapter 18, God shows up in another theophany similar to this. Um, he shows up to Abraham uh, at the oaks or terebinth trees of, of Mamre. And so God liked to show up at these places. The other thing about about trees is, um, is they served kind of an important function just back in that day in the Middle East. Uh, there was no air conditioning. So if you wanted some air conditioning, you needed to find some trees. That was your air conditioning to kind of be under the shade. But there's another detail about these terebinth trees as well, is that terebinth trees and oak trees in particular, um, many commentators talk about how it seemed that in the ancient pagan world, people thought that these places were kind of places where you could uh, kind of enter like a portal into the divine realm or to meet with these, other, with these other false pagan gods. Let me give you a couple examples of this just quickly to show you what I mean. In Hosea chapter 4, uh, verse 12, or I'll just read verse 13. He says, They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, excuse me, and they burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth because their shade of good, it, their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Now, he's talking about worshiping false gods under these trees. In Ezekiel chapter 6, he says something very similar. He says, and you shall know that I am the Lord when they're slain, lie among the idols, around their altars and on every high hill and on the mountaintops, under every green tree and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to their idols. So people would sacrifice to false gods under these trees. Not only that... But a little bit of a spoiler alert, we're not going to fully get, be able to get into this part of the story. We'll touch on it just briefly. But you'll notice that this tree belonged to Gideon's dad, Joash the Abrazite, okay? Or Abiz, Abizrite, okay? Um, now, later on in the story, what we find is, is that Joash, his dad, has kind of become a hub. He's kind of become an epicenter for the worship 
of Baal and Asherah. Okay, that's, you can see that later on in verses 25, 26, and 27 of this same chapter. Now here's the point. The point is, is that in the midst of this pagan land where God's people have given themselves over to a bunch of pagan acts of worship, and this is why God has given them over into the hand of Midian, is that the angel of the Lord shows up essentially, we might say, right in enemy territory. Right at these trees where these false gods are worshipped. And I just like the picture because he shows up like a boss. He shows up and he just sits there and he's like, these are my trees. You know why? Because they are. It's similar to when Jesus took um, the 12 disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which was kind of like pagan headquarters where a bunch of crazy, weird pagan rituals and idolatry and false gods were worshipped. And he takes them there to this actual place called the gates of hell. And he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the same picture here, is that you see the angel of the Lord showing up in the midst of all this pagan darkness and he's like, I'm in charge. This is my house. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is my land. These are my trees. This is my world. And praise God that he is so gracious that he still does this in our lives, amen? That in the midst of our darkness, even people who should know him, even people who have his word and should be worshiping him, not the pagan gods of this world. And here's the thing, folks, we don't have to go into it, but real quickly, you wanna know what Baal and Asherah were? If I had to sum them up, there's a lot of little subcategories underneath these. But here's what it was, it was money and sex. That's what those gods were. Tell me those aren't the same gods being worshiped today. Tell me it's not the same thing that every dark heart wants to pursue. Tell me it's not the same thing that the people of God find themselves going after again and again and again. And God in his mercy and in his grace, he shows up to call us out of that, to call us to something better, to call us to himself, amen? And it is an act of sheer grace. Gideon Gideon did nothing to warrant this. The people of God did nothing to warrant this. And I want to tell you something this morning that I just want to press on for just a second. In the midst of all our self-help, I can change my life if I just try harder nonsense that we believe in our culture and even in the church. I want to tell you this and just hang with me. It might be discouraging for just a second, but I'm telling you it is the truth. Is you cannot change your life. And I want you to feel that for a second. I want you to feel the fact that you cannot change yourself is that you are a sinner and the only hope for you is Jesus Christ. And you cannot force his hand, you cannot make him do anything. And we think, even in the midst of our Christianity, that if I just, you know, sing the right song and do the right dance and, you know, put my money in and serve a little bit, then God better show up. You do not put God in your debt. Everything he does in your life is an act of sheer unmerited favor. That's it. That's it. And the reason we have hope, though, And the reason why the gospel really is good news is because him showing up in the midst of our darkness and in the midst of our sin, it's what he does. It's not that we earn it. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we somehow barter with him and force his hand and we just do the right thing and then he's he's pleased with our little song and dance. It is because he is a gracious, 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 gracious God who delights in saving sinners. It's our only hope. And here we see the pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the midst of enemy territory. And he's not stressed. He's not worried. He acts like he's in total control because he is. And he comes with this little sentence that is packed with good news. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appears to him and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon essentially goes, who, what? What? Yes, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. That little sentence there, some wonderful gospel truth and good news in there. It's what is true, and it's who we are. Here's what's true. The Lord, Yahweh, is with you. He's with you. That's, again, that's the season that we're in right now. Emmanuel, that Jesus came to earth. Emmanuel, God is with us. He is with us. Because he had to come, no, but because he chose to come. 
And not only that, but this is who you are. Almighty man of valor, the Bible says that in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm telling you, this passage is just gushing with good news. Is it, again, Jesus comes, or the pre-incarnate Christ comes here and he sits under this tree. Brothers and sisters, we have something better. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God, he came and he didn't just sit under a tree, he hung on a tree. And the Bible says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Why is that good news for us? Because Jesus Christ took upon himself the curse that we deserve. And all the sin, all the darkness, all the punishment that was ours, he took it in our place on the cross He came and he hung on a tree. I'm telling you, trees are a really big deal throughout the Bible. But no tree is more important than the tree that we find at Calvary. Where he became a curse for us. Not only did he die, but he was raised again on the third day. How do we know he was raised? Because he sent his spirit. How do we know that he sent his spirit? Because he's still saving people. He's still saving people like the five that are going to get baptized today. And it happens in different ways and at different times and he encounters us in different places. I know for just very briefly, I don't want to, you know, I'd love to have time for them to share their own testimonies at some point. But for little Addie McCaslin, it was at nine years old praying with her dad in her bedroom to accept Christ into her heart. I had the privilege about a year ago of seeing Joel and Wilma like, they just, it was like you could literally see it on their face and you could see it in their eyes. As they heard the gospel and it just, and God saved them. For Jonathan and Becca, as you talk to them, over the last couple years as God has been drawing them and working in their life, doing something new, that it looks different for everyone and for everyone here, but Jesus Christ is faithful to show up and encounter us in our darkness. It is the only hope that we have. Now quickly, I want to move on here to verse 13. And I want to look at Gideon's response to this good news message that the angel of the Lord brings him. Again, that the Lord is with you and you are mighty. We are more than conquerors in Christ. But but there are several lies. There are several lies that Gideon believes. And I want to identify these lies because I think we believe the same lies. Let me me read some of this quickly. Verses 13 through 18. (coughs) Excuse me. It says, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, My Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, excuse me, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said to him, I will stay until you return. Now, very quickly, five lies that that Gideon believes and I just got to kind of run through them for the sake of time. The first lie that he believes is that God had abandoned them. Notice what he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, verse 13, why then has all this happened to us? Now, is that kind of true? Yeah, it's kind of true. But did God leave them or did they leave God? They left God. And see, we believe this lie. This is one of the lies we believe. We believe the lie that God isn't good. We believe that he's forsaken us. Brothers and sisters, that's not true. God did not spare his own son, but sent him. How will he not also along with him freely give us all things? God does not forsake us, but we forsake him. The second lie that he believes is that it would just be better if we could go back to an earlier time. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 13. He says, where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? And saying, did, they, did the Lord not bring us up out of Egypt? Now I think what's happening here is that, is that Gideon was you know, treading out some wheat in his wine press, kind of hiding from the enemy, kind of trying to scrounge out a living. He had probably heard the message from the prophet that we just read a little bit earlier 
in verses 8, 9, and 10. And so he's th- he, he'd heard these stories of how God had delivered from Egypt, but he thinks, oh man, if we could just go back then. And I hear so many Christians talking about, if we could just go back, if we could just go back. Listen, brothers and sisters, there, there wasn't this great golden age. All there is is the people of God calling upon God right now in the present. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is our hope. Do you understand? We have the same privilege of those people that experienced the exodus and God bringing them out of, the, out of Egypt. We have the same privilege of calling upon the same Lord, the same Yahweh, who saved them, can save us. And this, quite honestly, is the only hope for anybody, for any individual, for any church, and also for any nation. It's not found in your special political party. It's found in calling upon the name of the Lord. The third lie that he believes is that our past dictates our identity and therefore determines our future. Look at verse 15. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In other words, he's like, you don't know my story. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. I've always been. I'm the youngest in my father's house. I have nothing to offer. And because he believed that this is who he was, that that then determined his future, that this is all I can ever do. We believe the same lies about ourselves. We think that our past, our family, our history, what we've done, where we've come from, it's going to, it has determined who we are, it's shaped our identity, and so we cannot go forward, and our future will never be any different. But the angel of the Lord just showed up, and he said the thing that trumps any excuse we could ever give, and that is, I am with you, and you're mighty. Why? Because I'm with you. That's it. Jesus Christ is with us. He has sent his spirit to us. Him being with us trumps any excuse we could ever give. The fourth lie is that we need God to do something more to give us a sign before we can trust him. Verse 17 says, And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Now this is going to be the first of many signs that Gideon asks for. Um, We'll see this over the next couple weeks as we go through these three chapters on his life, probably the most famous of which we're not going to really get to today, but is is him asking for the fleece. And that wasn't just one sign, it was two signs. You know, at first he wants wants to lay the fleece out and he wants it to be wet and then the ground to be dry and then he wants the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. So he keeps asking for these signs that God is with him. This is a lie that we believe. We believe that we need God to do something more before we can trust him. Again, he has sent his son, he's raised him from the dead, he's sent his spirit. What else would you like him to do? He, he's, he, he, he will, like he, he works in our life. Each one of us has stories and testimonies of how he's been faithful in our life. But if I can just point something out, I, I've, had, I've had moments in my life where God has provided for me in such miraculous ways that, and I'm sure, I bet you guys have had these moments too, is that you, you have these moments where he provides for you and you're just amazed at his provision or the answer to prayer in that moment. And I, you know what I do? I go, God, I'm never gonna doubt you again. And then later that week, God, where are you? Here's the truth, brothers and sisters, is that yesterday's sign is not enough for today's faith. Yesterday's sign was good and God is gracious. He doesn't need to do it, but he does. And he meets us at different seasons where we're at and he encounters us and they're good and we can testify to him. But yesterday's sign is not going to be enough for today's faith. You must choose every day to believe this word and to believe what he says is true. And this is how we go forward following Jesus in a life of discipleship. There's no other way to do it. The fifth lie, (coughs) excuse me, that Gideon believes is that we can actually bring God something that he needs. And we'll kind of transition here in the story. Um, I love this. Is that Gideon asks for this sign, and then verse 18 says, Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord says, I will stay until you return. Verse 19. So Gideon went to his house and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket. And the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So here's what's happening. Probably in an act of cultural hospitality, uh, Gideon goes to prepare a meal for his guest. But before he goes, he had asked him for a sign that God was speaking to him. And most commentators think that what he was doing here and going and getting the meal was, yeah, he was being hospitable, but he was also uh, giving the heavenly messenger time to think of some sort of sign that he could give to Gideon in order to bolster his faith. But Gideon goes off and he, he prepares a goat. I don't know how long it takes to prepare a goat, but I don't think it's a microwavable meal. Um, and he brings back some broth and what amounts to uh, some dinner rolls. And so he sets it before him, thinking that his guest is going to eat this uh, meal that he, he's prepared. Uh, but instead, um, he just tells him to take the broth and he pours it over the goat and, uh, and over the, the little bread or, 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 or the dinner rolls. Now, on one level, it's funny just to think about this on kind of a natural level because like how many of you ladies, if you prepared Thanksgiving, you know, your Thanksgiving meal, like if someone would have just gotten the turkey and some dinner rolls and the dressing and then just dumped gravy on it and went outside and tried to light it on fire, right? You're like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> like I made this, I made this for you. Um, uh, so it's kind of funny just on a natural level to think about what's, what's, what's going on here. Um, but this is actually a very, very beautiful picture of how God works in our life, and there's an important, there's an important lesson for us, okay? Um, and that is, is that here, here's the thing. Fire does not come from rocks, and wet meat and wet dough do not generally burn well, Okay? And in the same way, Gideon had essentially just got done telling the Lord after the Lord tells him, you know, I'm going to use you. If I had to kind of sum up what Gideon said, he's like, Lord, my life is nothing but a big soggy mess. You can't, you can't use this. You can't set it on fire. You don't know where I came from. You don't know my story. You don't know my family. You don't know my ancestry. You don't know what I've done. He thought that he was unusable. And his life was kind of a picture of this soggy mush meal that he brought to the Lord. But the Lord reaches out and he just touches it. And it's all consumed just like that. And I think the point that the Lord is making here is he's saying, Gideon, I don't care how unusable you think you are. I don't care how impossible you think it is for me to display my glory through your life. The point is that anything I touch can burn. And it can burn bright for my glory if I choose to touch it. And that's the bottom line. Nothing else matters. It's the same thing for us. Is no matter how much of a soggy, mushy, meat and bread, broth soaked mess our life seems to be, if the Lord wants to set it on fire, he will, and he can. And I'm here to tell you this morning that he wants to. But this is our, this is our life. We, we don't have anything that we bring him. You understand? The angel of the Lord, he, he, didn't, he, he doesn't gain sustenance. He doesn't gain strength from the offerings that we bring. But the offerings that we bring, and what's it, our, our very life, we're told in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And it is a privilege and an act of grace if he just reaches out his hand and touches us and causes us to be consumed and to burn bright for his glory. Several years ago, there's a story that this passage reminds me of. I was talking to a guy, we are meeting at Newgrounds Cafe, he was a church planter out in the Seattle area. And it was just, he was just having a hard time. But he recounted this, this story to me that, that stuck with me of how he had uh, um, went to get a coffee and then was walking down along the shoreline on this beach in the midst of this difficult time in his life trying to plant churches and just not seeing a bunch of fruit. 
And he said he stood there and he was just kind of looking out over the water and he sat the coffee, which was hot in like a little, you know, uh, disposable cup or whatever, down on the sand. And he said he was just praying. He was like kind of crying out to the Lord. And then, and then he said he went to pick it up, but he said, he, you might not know this, and I, I wouldn't have known this until he told me, but when something's hot, you know that little space in the bottom of the cup, it's kind of got the rim, and then the, the actual bottom of the cup is up just a little bit. When that's hot, you set it on sand, it creates this like suction, like this suction effect. And so he went to go pick up his coffee, and the lid popped up, popped off, and his coffee spilled over, and it all spilled out into the ocean. And he said, even though he had just got done having this time of prayer where he was like pouring out his heart to the Lord, he said he was so mad. <laughs> he said he was just so mad. He said, I said, God, you, why'd you make me spill my coffee? He said, but as he began to recount this story with, with almost tears in his eyes, he said in that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And he said, that's right. And he said, you know what? Your life is just like that cup of coffee. And if I choose to pour you out into an ocean of nothingness, I can choose to do so. Because your life is mine. Now that might sound harsh, but for this guy, it was a turning point and a moment of great surrender. When he realized that it was nothing that he brings to the table that makes the difference is that the only thing that makes the difference is the sovereign grace of God. And if he chooses to reach out and to use us and to consume our lives for his honor and for his glory. And I hope I'm making sense this morning. It, but if I can just sit here for just a second, brothers and sisters, I pray that each one of us would feel this. And especially for those of you that are getting baptized this morning. What you're going to be saying when you get into that water, you go down, you come back up, what you are saying, and we've talked about this, for those of you that are getting baptized, you know this past week, as we did this, like, you have died with Christ. And this is for all of us that call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. You are not your own. You belong to him. And it is a privilege if he reaches out and touches your life and just consumes it for his glory. That's all we want. Or if he just wants to, you know, to the coffee store, if he just wants to pour it out, he can. But our, our life here on this earth, folks, it is, the, the, I mean, does the Bible not say it is a vapor? We're getting to that time of year where we should be reminded of this. We walk outside and it's cold and we breathe and and you see the breath, and it's there for just an instant, and then it's gone. Brothers and sisters, that's you. That's me. All we have is this little vapor of a life. It's nothing to bring to him. But my prayer is that our hearts, especially for those of you that call mercy home, that we would be individuals and church that say, God, here's what I got. It's absolutely nothing. It's just a vapor. But if you would be gracious and please just reach out the tip of your staff and just touch it and let us burn bright and hot and be consumed for your honor and for your glory in the little bit of time that we have. That's should be the heart of God's people. Amen? It's a privilege to be consumed for him. And I'll tell you what, here's the good news. Is that when you allow this to happen, there's no, when, when, you, or when, you, when you gain this attitude, when you come to this place, where you realize that your life is like a cup of coffee that could be poured out, or just a soggy mush mess where he can consume in an instant and burn hot just for a second for his glory and that also that there's nothing that we bring him but it's all about what he does, what he might choose to do through us. There's a great peace that comes. There's a peace like no other. And we have something else very unique in this passage as we continue on here. In verse 22, it says, Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. 
So now he recognizes who he's talking to. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God. And that's Hebrew for, ah! In other words, he knows that he had seen God face to face. For now I have seen the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, face to face. But Yahweh said to him, peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it. And this is one of the names for God in the Bible. It's the only place in the Bible where this appears. He called it, the Lord is peace. So remember when um, God provides the ram and the thicket, when Abraham is about to offer up Isaac, and he calls that place Jehovah or Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. In the same way, here is, it's one of the names for God in the Bible. It's the only place that it occurs. It's Jehovah is Shalom or Yeshua Shalom. That God is peace. Again, I think the point is how does this peace come? When we understand that there's nothing we can do for him. There's nothing we can bring him. Our only hope is trusting in his grace. That even if our lives are just a mushy, soggy mess, if he chooses to consume us, then so be it. It's all for his honor and for his glory. If you guys are getting, you guys that are getting baptized, you can get up and go. Um, and I'll begin, to, I'll begin to wrap up here. Um, there's more to the story. We just, we just don't have time. I feel like this will be a good, a good place to stop. It's, it's after this encounter with the angel of the Lord that then God is going to call Gideon to go and to first tear down some idols in his father's house. Um, and before he's going to have him go out and fight the Midianites, the battle out there, in other words, he's going to have him first fight the battle that's close to home. Uh, this man who was just one individual that was part of a nation that had drifted away that was living in sin. He calls this man, before he calls the nation to repentance, he calls him and his father's house to repentance. And it's a picture of where we ourselves need to start. And I want to ask you this morning if you'll just do something, if you'll just bow your heads with me and just close your eyes. And I just want to ask you some questions this morning. And I promise you that I'm asking these same questions to my heart. And I've been asking them this past week. This isn't for the person next to you or behind you or beside you. But I want to ask you, first of all, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Or is he just a God among other gods? Is he just a God among Baal and Asherah? Money and sex, along with comfort and pleasure and fame and fortune and power and prestige and all the other gods that this world has to offer. If so, I want to call you this morning to turn, to believe in Jesus right now where you sit, not later, right now. If you feel like you're in bondage, if you feel like you're oppressed, if you feel like your experience is that of the Israelites where you were just simply living on the margins, on the edges, if you feel like Anton Yates where you've been, you've been pushed out of the, what is supposed to be your home because the tiger of sin has just taken over. Brothers and sisters, you've got to put that thing to death. And hear me, it's not in your own strength. It's by calling upon the name of the Lord right now in faith. Acknowledging that the tiger is too strong for you, it's too big for you. But it's not too big for him. I also want to ask you this morning that, you know, Gideon here in this story, he's talking with God face to face for quite a while before he realizes that it's him. 
And I wonder this morning if some of us are just, we're, we're kind of like waiting. We're like Gideon, we're, we're waiting for another sign. We're waiting for something else. We're waiting for God to do something else, not realizing that he's right in front of us. He's right there. My point being, maybe God has been trying to speak to you right here this morning in this message from his word. What else do you want him to do? He has sent his son, and there's always hope in Christ. And he came to set poor sinners free. And I just want to ask you this morning, one last question, and then we'll baptize these guys. But in just a second, as, we, as we're going to see five individuals go into the water, go down, and come back up, do you know, do you know, do you know that if you die, that you too will be raised with Christ? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You cannot earn it. It is not by works of any sort because there will be no boasting in his presence. And I would just plead with you to right now where you sit, if you do not know where you would go if you die tonight, to call upon the name of the Lord right now where you sit and ask him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior and to save you from your sin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the beautiful picture that it is of how you draw near to those who do not deserve it. And you call us out and you give us purpose and you give us hope and you're patient with us. So Father, we just ask that in the midst of any fear, anxiety, worry, and sin and idolatry that might be represented here today, that you would just come in your power and your authority that you would take it away. Thank you so much for being good to us. Thank you so much for loving us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.